If you would, please open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 10. The verse in question is verse 24, but for context, and I'll be relying upon it somewhat, although not giving a full uh, summary of each, each word or phrase, uh, I'd like to start in verse 19 and go through verse 25. And so Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. The author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for wisdom, and we ask that you would reveal your word to us spiritually by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give guidance to us as we come to this topic of stirring one another up. I pray that you would teach us how to do this well and teach us how to do it for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, or or perhaps you're just uh, coming along now, we are going through a series in the evening, preaching through the one another's of Scripture. That is, we're finding great texts in the Bible that speak of commandments that relate to the body corporately, that relate to how we interact with one another and how we treat one another and how we deal with one another in the church. And the one that we have for this evening, and I'm very excited to have, is the topic of stirring up one another. I think that when we hear that, we probably imagine that that's the one that gets left aside very often. That's the one that gets perhaps forgotten about or not really given its due. After all, when we think of the one another's, we think of love one another and forgive one another and so many other ones that, that pop to our head perhaps a little bit quicker. But I do want to say, and I hope that this sermon will be convincing and God's word will show us that this one is not to be left out. This one is not to be considered unimportant, but instead this command to stir up one another is really vital for the health of the church. If I could put it this way, there is a great need in the church broadly and even here in our local church for us to stir one another up. I have a very simple outline for us tonight that'll break this down, hopefully. I have two points. First is, what does it mean? What does it mean to stir up one another? And secondly, how do we do it? Let's start with the first point. What does it mean to stir up one another? Well, if I could give you a very basic definition, it means to rouse somebody to a particular kind of action, to rouse them 
or to push them or to move them in a particular way so that there is a particular response. I particularly like the way that the King James renders this verb. It's to provoke one another. To provoke one another. That is to incite one another or to evoke a certain kind of response from one another. Now, something we should see about this word from the start is that it's a very broad word. It can be used in a very broad uh, kinds of meaning. And really, there's a negative connotation to this word as well as a very positive connotation. I think most often when we hear the word provoke one another or, or to incite a response from someone, we usually think of it in the negative. And perhaps rightly so. That's often how we use it today. That is that we can provoke someone to anger, for example. We can provoke someone to frustration or to uh, annoyance with us by how we treat them or by what we say to them or by what we do to them. Not only that, but in the New Testament, this word can even have the meaning of entering into a debate with somebody. Uh, entering into fierce argument with somebody. And I can just give you one example. In Acts chapter 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to go on a missionary journey. And the question arises of whether or not we take Mark with us. And of course, there's disagreement. And we're told this in verses 37. It says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark... But Paul thought, thought it not best to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. In other words, the word there is they stirred up one another. They were sharply opposed to one another. So it can be used in this very negative way. But it can also be used in a much more positive way, have a positive connotation. As just as I can provoke you to anger, I can also provoke you to joy or to love or to happiness. And I, I think there's so many ways that we see this uh, done in our life. I think of music, for example. I'm a great music lover. And, and what does beautiful music do? Well, it often evokes a kind of emotional response from us that we, we feel the feels, as the kids like to say. We get emotional, perhaps. Or another one is certain foods or certain smells evoke memories. So for me, one of my favorite desserts of all time is Mississippi mud pie. And the reason it's my favorite is because that was the dessert that my mom has made for me every birthday since I was a, a, a young kid. And so every time I eat it, it, what is evoked from me is nostalgia. Memories for home. I, I think about my mother and I think about good times as a child. Now, the word we have here in Hebrews 10.24 is much more along the lines of this positive. Uh, certainly, we're not provoking one another in a negative sense. We're provoking one another or stirring up one another in a positive manner. And go back to the definition of, of stirring up for just a moment. It means to rouse somebody to action. That is, we're stirring one another up to a particular kind of action. That is, we're not doing this randomly, but we're doing it looking for a response. Now, what is that response? Well, the author tells us, stir one another up to love and to good works. 
In other words, here is the goal. We stir one another up so that we might have a church filled with love. A church filled with good works. A church where we are stirring each other up to compassion. And stirring each other up to greater hospitality, to greater service, and so on. In other words, this doesn't just deal with what we do. It doesn't just deal with our love and our works. Rather, it's dealing with how we draw others in. That is, by how we live, it affects others. And how they live, it is to affect us. And we are to be moved by each other. And they are to be moved by us. One other way I could put it is is to stir each other up. There is a sense of holy excitement. That is, I see your works of holiness. And they make me excited. I want to do them too. You see my love and it motivates you and it moves you to love the way that I love. Perhaps we could even say that there's a sense of competition in this word as well. There's a sense of competition in the fact that we are to be building upon each other. That is, that your good works are to build off of my good works. That your love is to build off of my love in the church. I like the way Paul puts it in Romans. He says, outdo one another. And that really is the idea. We're stirring each other up in this friendly, competitive sense. We're matching each other. We are imitating one another. Of course, not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And I think that this idea of stirring one another up is extremely relevant to the current series that we're doing on the one another's. Because after all, the one another's are good works, aren't they? They're all about doing good works for one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, teaching and serving and forgiving one another. Well, this one, stirring one another up, is in a sense fuel for the fire. It energizes us. It moves us forward. It propels us in those actions, lest we grow tired, lest we grow weary lest we fall by the wayside and cease to encourage one another, lest we start to cease loving one another, we stir each other up back to those actions. We must stir up one another. Well, that's what it means, but then how do we do it? That's my second and admittedly longer point for this evening. How do we do it? And the first thing I want us to see is that we can only do it if we are truly excited about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think I can express this strongly enough. We cannot stir one another up about what we are not excited for. In other words, we must start with a high view of the gospel. We must have passion ourselves for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that is shown to us in the context of this verse. All of Hebrews is a deeply theological uh, take on what it is that Christ has done for us. And, And right before the author comes to this verse about stirring one another up, he is summarizing the greatness of the salvation we have in Christ. Let me briefly uh, have you look here at verses 19 and 20. 
He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In other words, as he's summarizing this work of salvation, what does he say? Jesus has given us a new way to God, a way that is apart from working by the law, which is not possible. Not only is it a new way, but it's a wonderful way where we are brought into the innermost chamber. We're brought into the very holy of holies where you and I, by the work of Christ, get to enjoy the very presence of God. We get to stand before him justified. We get to stand before him reconciled. And the beauty is is that this is all by the sacrifice of Christ. It's not at all by our works. It's all through his blood there upon the cross. And it lasts for all eternity. Now look with me as he goes on in verses 21 and 22. It says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So why else is this salvation so great? Well, he tells us plainly. We have a great high priest, a great high priest in Jesus who prays for us, who intercedes for us. Not only that, he he describes that Jesus is the one who has sanctified us, that he has cleansed us, that he has saved us from our sins. And what is sort of the response all throughout these verses? What is the result of knowing this? Well, he says it again and again. We can have confidence. We can have assurance. We can know that we're saved. We can know that we have a great Savior. We can know that we have great mercy from a great God who loves us tremendously more than we could ever fathom. Now, how does that relate to stirring up one another? Well, let me ask you a question. Can you stir up someone about something that is not great? Just think of it in terms of something that perhaps many of us know. A bad sports team. Does anybody get excited about the baseball team that loses almost all of its games and has the worst players? Well, there might be a few diehard fans, but in reality, there's not a lot of excitement about the team that always loses. But then you look at the team that is fantastic and has the best budget and has the best players and is on the winning streak and always makes it to the playoffs. There's tons of excitement. The fans go wild. There's passion and there's energy and people even flock to it. We, we even have a cultural word for this. We call it joining the bandwagon. That is, they become fans the moment they see how great the team is. Wasn't it somewhat similar with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That if we are going to stir people up to serve Christ, then don't we have to think that serving Christ is worthwhile? Don't we have to think that serving Christ is a a treasure and a delight? In other words, we have to think there is something great and worthy about Jesus Christ. We must think highly of the gospel. And after all, salvation is a big, big deal. The God of the universe has so loved you that he has made a sacrifice for you. 
The God of the universe has so loved you that He has bought you. He's redeemed you. He has justified you. He has sanctified you. He has given you all of the privileges of His kingdom. All by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What greater salvation could we imagine? You could... For example, consider how the prophets of old spoke of salvation. I I find it so fascinating as I read the prophets in the Bible. They speak of salvation with such lofty language. In almost grand images. I'll just give you one example from Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk is talking about God as a savior when God came and saved his people. And this is what he says. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. He looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? We wonder, when did God do those things? Why does he speak of salvation in this grand sense? And I think the answer is, is because the prophets considered the salvation of God the most amazing thing that God could ever do. It was the chief among his works. What do you think about God's salvation? Does it excite you? Does it move you? Does it fill you with passion and love for Jesus Christ and what he has done? I have to say this right from the start. Without this, we will never stir up anyone to love and to good works. Secondly, we must consider one another. How can we stir one another up? We can be a bit more specific here. We must consider one another. Look at verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another. And I'd probably say that that consider is the second most important word in this whole text. First first, uh, word would be stir up, but this is the second most important. That is that we can't stir up one another unless we consider one another. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's very simple. It means that we think about one another, that we observe, that we contemplate. That is, that we must know each other. There's a sense in which this word even means that we must study and observe one another. We must occupy our minds thinking about one another. That is, I shouldn't just know your name. I should know something about you. I should know something of your circumstances. I should know something of your spiritual gifting, something of your testimony, something of your struggles. Why? Because I can't encourage you if I don't know you. I can't stir you up if I don't know you from Adam. And also, I can't stir you to good works unless I know something about your spiritual gifts. For example, are you a teacher? Are you someone who's gifted in hospitality or mercy or leadership? In other words, depending on who we are, and we're all very different people called to very different ministries by the Lord, all given different spiritual gifts, depending on who we are, the way to stir one another up will depend entirely on who that person is. We need to know one another. We need to consider one another. And I think there's another important application from this point as well. It shows us that stirring one another up doesn't just happen. 
It's not just a byproduct of being near one another. It's not just a byproduct of being next to one another. We must consider one another. We must take thought and time and deep consideration for how to push each other along, for how to encourage each other in the Christian faith. So this is your aim in the church. You need to know your sister. You need to know your brother in Christ. Not just so that you can fellowship with them. Not just so that you can worship with them or get along with them or put up with them. You need to know them so that you can stir them up properly to love and to good works. Now lastly, how can we stir one another up? What does the text emphasize for us? It tells us, do not neglect gathering together. Look with me at verse 25. Here's almost a commentary on verse 24. We stir one another up to love and to good works. How? Not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And here's where the author makes a very pointed application for these people. They have to stop neglecting their gatherings. They have to stop neglecting their gathering together. Now, what kind of gathering is the author talking about? Well, I think first of all, and primarily, he's talking about their worship. What does it mean for the people of God to gather together? Well, it's primarily understood as a worship service when we come together, even now, to worship God and to praise Him. But I think there's a secondary meaning as well, that it doesn't just include that one specific gathering, it includes all of our gatherings. Whether we are gathering for prayer together, gathering to speak to one another, gathering to study the scriptures together, gathering for fellowship. In our context, you might think our Sunday schools and our community groups and our Bible studies and our youth groups and all the other gatherings that we have. And the author of Hebrews is pointing out a problem that he sees. Some have begun to neglect this. In fact, he says they've formed a habit of neglecting one another. That is a prolonged pattern. And just think about how habits start. They start off usually rather small. We might miss the occasional worship service, the occasional get-together, just once in a blue moon, and soon enough that can turn into once a month that we are not in church, and soon enough that can turn into every other week, and then we have sort of silently slipped out of the door. We see the great danger that, that small actions, if not addressed and not steered in a new direction, they can become prolonged habits, and he's reminding them that this habit is rather dangerous. They're neglecting worship. They're neglecting fellowship. And without that, there will be no opportunity to stir up one another. There will be no opportunity to be stirred up. It's a wonderful reminder to us that we are not called just to Christ alone. We're called to one another. We're called to belong to the church. One pastor puts it like this, and I love the way he says it. He says, we are a body with many parts. We're a family with many members. We are a temple with many living stones. And we are a nation with many citizens. 
In other words, gathering together is a necessity. Worshiping together is a necessity. It is a must that we come and sing and praise together and pray together and receive the sacraments together. And just as well, it is also necessary that we gather together for fellowship, to discuss God's word together, to ask questions of each other, to speak about our lives, to build meaningful friendships, to know one another, and to be known. And doesn't that fit so well with what we're talking about? Stirring one another up. After all, it's only when we are near each other that we're even able to do this at all. Because when we're near each other, that's when we see each other's works and we get stirred up. When we're in each other's homes and we see how you love each other, how a husband loves his wife and a wife loves her children, and it inspires us to love as well. It's only when we pray together that we get to see each other's zeal for Christ. And what's the natural result? We want to have zeal for Jesus the way that that person has zeal for Jesus. I've heard it in their prayer. It's only when we see each other's faith in action that we become excited by that and we say, I want to have that kind of faith. I want to do the things that my brother and my sister are doing. Do you see how vital this is? You can't stir each other up if you're not together. You can't be stirred up if you ignore the body. No, we must not neglect the gathering of ourselves together. And finally, in conclusion, you and I must stir one another up. How does that happen? Well, as we've said, it it starts by seeing the greatness of the gospel. We must captivate and be captivated by the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ in order to stir one another up. And secondly, we must consider one another. We must not be focused on ourselves. Rather, we need to be thinking about each other and how to push one another along in the Christian faith. Lastly, we must not neglect gathering together, but we must worship together. We must be together for fellowship. Will you obey this command? Do you see the need and the value of stirring one another up for the glory of God? Will you do it? Will you stir one another up to love and to good works, all for the glory of Christ? Let's pray.